Welcome to the Book Week Scotland Conversations podcast. Four conversations from Book Week Scotland on the themes of reading, childhood, language and home. This is a conversation about reading. My name is Tom Pau, the creative director of A Year of Conversation, and I'm taking part in this particular podcast on conversation and reading. To open a book is to open a conversation, so who better to open a conversation on reading with than Marjorie Gill, founder of the highly successful reading project Open Book. Marjorie is also, like me, a poet. Hundred years of solitude, can't get through it. Tried oh, about twenty times. Really, but it has been fifteen years, so maybe I should try it again. But do you know, I think sometimes with a book like that, that 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 where you're stuck, you just kind of like take a run at it. This is real sacrilege. Threw it into the fire once in fury because I had oh. tried to read it so many times. Right. And I finally thought, I just am fed up of how much of my life I've given to this text that I can't bear. But, you well, know. you're allowed. Are you? you, you yeah, you're, you're allowed. And I remember being at a book festival event many years ago with Doris Lessing. Oh. And Doris Lessing said, you know, when, you know, when she was young, when she was a student, there were a certain number of books that you had to read to be educated. You know, there's, there's yeah. the great tradition, um, you know, a few sort of like foreign masterpieces and stuff like that. And, and then you were considered to be well-read. But she said, how is it that for most of her adult life, all she's really been interest, interested in is reading and writing, and yet she has books climbing up her walls now beside her bed because now to be well read you've got you've got books in translation you've got the latin american books yeah, you've got the modern westerns you've got all kinds of different books coming from from all over the world and it's hard to choose so much of what i read is for work now that it's so rare to have a book for pleasure very, very rare that I get to choose something. Well, there is. There, there's, there's an excitement there, isn't there? There's the excitement of, of surprise in, in, yeah. in being told you're chairing a session and, and you discover something that you wouldn't have read. Uh, and there's the, um, the pleasure of searching for something and finding yeah. something that absolutely suits yeah, or there's it the opposite. Something. There's the experience of having loved a book. So we chose yeah. The English Patient as one of the books for the Edinburgh Book Festival this summer because I loved it when I read it. And I knew Andachi's work as a poet, loved the book when I read it. And then when I reread it this summer, I thought, I'm not sure, so sure about it anymore, which is a shame. I kind of almost wish I hadn't reread it because right. it had stayed in my brain as one of these. You can tell he's a poet in the writing. It's just beautiful writing, but the storyline, maybe I'm older and more cynical, didn't hang together as much as I wanted it to. So there is sometimes the inverse, but quite often it's something you think, I'm really not going to enjoy this, but I just have to get through it. And then there's something in it. That I wonder if for you then that makes that not a classic, because I always think if you read a classic, when you read it, always the right time to read it yeah it's like you know if you come late to a classic you know something that everybody's read in their 20s and you come to it in your 40s or 50 it always feels like the right time i mean a classic has that quality 
I don't, yeah, I don't know. I, I think actually I just, I've got more picky as I've got older. So I think early on I found lots of things really interesting. And now I think I'm, because I read with the eye of so many different people and so many different kinds of people who might approach literature, I can always find something that doesn't quite work in a piece, which is tricky as a writer and tricky as right. a reader, I think. Um, so there's bits that I, I just absolutely adore, but most of the time um, there's something that I think, oh, that wouldn't work for, you know, Andachi's wonderful if you just want to be taken away but I'm thinking oh lots of people would find this difficult or dense or the language here is a bit so I wonder if it's just that I'm getting older and I wonder if my bookshelves will get shorter in some ways of the things that I would want to reread rather than well, I as, as you're young, you're a reading machine. <laughs> as, as time runs out, maybe you do want to, uh, maybe you do get more picky. I read, for example, one of the books we read this summer was In the Light of What We Know by Zia Hadar Rahman. I, it's a really dense and difficult book, but it was one of the best books I've read ever because it touches on science, it touches on race, it touches on all sorts of things that I thought I was, was not interested in and bits of it that I was interested in. And funny, almost everyone else I know couldn't get through the book. So right. I think that maybe my tastes are changing or just this, I, I need something to surprise me in a so way. It's, so it's not difficulty that puts you No, off. no, it's just, I think that it, has to surprise me. It has to be something that I'm not expecting. So maybe the idea of rereading something doesn't give me that in the same way. I'm not sure. Does does what you've read um, have an effect on what you write? I think what I've read has an effect in the sense that it, again, it needs to have something in it that's surprising not only to the reader but to me. So I could never think of myself writing something about the subject of maths, for example, because it's it's not my best subject, shall we say. Mm-hmm. But then that's the sort of thing I think I should tackle. I should try and go learn something new or learn about something in a way and find out what about that thing surprises me or what engages me rather than, you know, that old adage you have to write about what you know. Mm-hmm. I actually think there's more magic in some ways when you are finding yourself surprised mm-hmm. by something. Um, then the writing that comes is fresher or more interesting. You're able to see the sparkle in things in a way that you might not about your favorite teacup or you yeah. know, the experiences that you have. So there's that. And then I think I've been reading about more about the experience of people being other. I think seeing how other people do that well is really interesting to me because it's something that I'm interested in writing about, but I'm not never sure how to do it in a way that engages other people. Now, th- this is a world that... that that you that you know. I mean, I remember when we were talking about about poetry. I remember as uh, you know, in my upper years in in school, the uh, Penguin Modern European Poets came out. Yeah, uh, you know, Holub and and Vasco Popa and Herbert, and uh, I remember being just sort of like terribly taken with them with the simplicity and with this sense of the world mm. that that they came from that there was you know like this this was a a world that was politically um repressed and uh, here's just uh, this is this is the end of love by Miroslav Holub where he describes love and he says at the end of the poem he says sweepings dust bitter as the beginning of the world Believe me when I say it was beautiful. Uh, oh, I loved that. <laughs> I loved that. So, uh, so I was aware of that other, and I was aware of history. 
used to come into these poems, you know, and his, history yeah. would bow and history would speak and history was an actor. Now, back in the sort of 50s or 60s, his, history was static, you know, Europe yeah. was Europe, you know, like everything was static, you know, and then suddenly it's moved, of course, and uh, your writing and your life experience is is imbued with the movement of history. Yeah, because I'm sort of got one foot in one place and one foot in another, and then I live in a third place. So it's a very strange thing to find yourself half and half and then living this year, actually, longer in a third place. So I grew up in Tehran as a little girl um, with an Iranian father and an American mother. And we left um, in 78 and 79. We didn't all get out at the same time. Um, my dad wasn't able to come out with us, so we left during the Iranian Revolution. So we lived through part of the revolution, and then when the airport shut, my mum and my brother and I left, and my dad came out the next year. Um, and we lived in Ohio for a little while, which was a really interesting experience being Iranian. And then, and then I largely grew up in Washington, D.C., but in, for the past 20 years, I've lived in Britain. So I have this experience of being, not really being entirely American, not being entirely Iranian, but having the last 20 years of my life, people also asking me, both based on what I look like, but also what I sound like, where I'm from. Even last week, someone will say, where, asked me, where are you from? And I'd say, I'm, I'm from America. No, but where are you really from? So there's always this question of, people really want to place me. Do you object to that question? Not really. It's an interesting. It's an interesting one. I think because I sound different than I look, people really mm. struggle to figure out where to put me. I think as I get older in Scotland, it will be harder because as I grow to be an older person in Scotland and have spent most of my life here, it's hard not to be Scottish. I think, and I think I never will be. So it's a really interesting kind of question of how long does it take to belong somewhere? What does that look like or feel like? And lately, I've been writing about what it feels like to arrive in a place. But lately, I'm really interested in what does it feel like to arrive and to be that other? How long does it take to stop being the other? I don't know the answer because I don't think I've got it. And, it. and is that because I know in a lot of your writing, um, you draw on these memories of life in Tehran that, yeah. that, are, that are very very clear. I suppose that's, that's early memories. Yeah. And they're, they're, maybe, they're maybe locked in. I think I would had the the luck, the fortune of being young enough to remember things. So my brother, who's a couple of years older, doesn't remember much of it because a lot of it was really dangerous, to be honest. Mm. You know, watching riots, uh, all sorts of things that we really shouldn't have been doing as children, getting on a plane in the middle of a war and struggling to get out. He doesn't remember any of that, but because I wasn't entirely aware of the danger, I, can't, I remember much more. So, and then all, my whole life has been affected by that. You know, my whole life has been affected by leaving home with a suitcase and starting again with nothing and then having particularly brown skin in a very white place. So people, that experience has informed entirely who I am and where I've come from. So it's hard not to work that in. Someone who I think does a beautiful job of that is Zafar Kunail in his book, Us. He writes about growing up in England um, with dual heritage and always being asked where you're from, always having this question hanging over him, even though he's born and bred British. His father is from Kashmir and lives in Lahore, but I think his main connection, almost his entirety of his life is English. But that whole idea of what we look like informs our entire existence. So I think that book uh, is a really beautiful um, 
consideration of that question. Can you see the book as a home? Can you see reading as 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 a as a home something where you can um, you can let that that traveling imagination settle for for a while? I think it'd be interesting to ask how that differs from um, people who have always lived in the same place. Because for me, I think. Yeah, it's absolutely another world that you get to inhabit. I love it. I've always been a huge reader. I think because of that idea of getting to be in other worlds all the time, it's a really natural feeling for me of popping in and out of lives, popping in and out of characters. But I wonder if that's partly because we were displaced, you know, we just yeah. popping in and out of places. So it feels a natural thing to hop into Anne of Green Gables' life or whoever's life it is now. Um, Jan Carson's late recent Firestarters book. I love that idea of being in the in the minds of other people. But partly, I wonder if that's true for everyone, or if it's just because I'm quite at home at popping in and out of lives. I mean, we can talk, can't we, about the value the value of reading, and the value of what reading does. Maybe maybe in in giving you a home, maybe giving you. Um, an imaginative space that you can share with people, a kind of shared intimacy with people. Yeah, yeah I think that's true, particularly of our open book groups, the, yeah. the work that we do through open book, which is bringing people together to read together. So they do all the reading aloud in the group. Um, and that means that you don't have to be able to read, you don't have to be able to see, English doesn't have to be your first language, you can tackle the same text as a group. On It's a real leveler, that idea of reading together out loud. And what it does for us in our groups is it allows everybody to access the same world at the same time, at the same level, and then gives them something to talk about. So it's almost like you're yeah. all inhabiting, of course, when you're sitting together and reading with other people, you're inhabiting the same room, but you get to inhabit the same characters in the same spaces and then stop and almost pop out of it and talk to each other about it. So it's a real, what we do is what we is connect people through literature. We, the literature is a tool to allow people to make connections that they wouldn't otherwise make. Ali Smith said, home begins with a conversation. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's something there as well about, I know the, the importance you attach to conversation because you've just eloquently expressed that, that um, the reading is, is really a mechanism of, for, of delivery for the conversation and the, the connections uh, to take place. Yeah, I mean, we describe them as shared reading or reading groups, but actually what we always say as a kind of byline is that the literature is just the tool for creating connections and communities. What we're trying to do is build communities of people and give them things to talk about that aren't themselves because we don't, we don't all want to come somewhere and talk about ourselves, particularly if you've had difficult life experiences. So it's an excuse to talk about the father in the story or the mother in the story or the boy in the story inevitably the way we feel about the father or the mother or the boy is shaped by our own experiences, whether we articulate that or not. So it is an opportunity to, to give something away about yourself without actually having to use the word I. You know, and that's a really powerful thing, I think, because you can connect with other people without feeling like you've had to put your guard down or be and that's but, but literature has particular qualities that allows you, that allows you to do that. I mean, there's lots of, I mean, just about every enterprise in the arts can lead to conversation and, and connection but literature I suppose because of the portability that you talked about and, and the range of experiences that, that uh, you can bring into it um, 
offers um, offers value offers a, a, a sort of a great. It's a great. It, it's a very rich tool to be using. It is, and when we do it on our own, it's an empathy thing, right? So we we feel about we feel the feelings of characters that maybe not aren't like us, and that's a really rich thing. But when you do it in a group. You're not only feeling the sense of the characters, but you're able to understand how other people might have read it, which I think is, that is the power. So a great example of that is working in low moss prison for a year. I was reading with a group of guys, some of whom don't read, some of whom won't read, some of whom were doing their hires in English. One was doing an OU degree, I think. We were reading Raymond Carver at their request. Tough stories, tough, little, tiny, hard, um, massively edited stories with huge gaps in them. The guys loved these stories because they all really disagreed about what was going on in the story. They're short enough to read aloud. So half of the guys weren't reading. They were just listening and then disagreeing about what the heck was happening in these stories. And what it did was allow them to have conversations with people they would never talk to otherwise about things that weren't themselves. And actually, no matter where they were on their education, whether they could read, they were able to connect with each other and say, no, no, that's a weird thing. No, that's a normal thing. We like him. We don't like him. He reminds me of my own dad. Whatever it is, some of the conversations that came out of that as the group got to know each other were totally remarkable. And you could see them having empathy more for each other in the group. And our whole model of our groups is the less the lead reader is in the room, the better. So the idea is you do the reading and then step back and let the group take over. And that's what they were doing. They were empathizing with each other um, through this tool of literature, which is remarkable to do in a group. It's not something we think about, I think, as a group activity, literature, necessarily. And you always think that you need to be able to read the well, words, but you don't I, I don't, do Well, that. I don't know. I'm, I'd like to make my, introduce my reading now, oh. uh, which comes from uh, Daniel Pennack. It's called uh, Reads Like a Novel. Uh, and I read this. I read this some years ago when I when I was still teaching, and uh, it's it's written in. He was a teacher, and uh, he was working in in uh, Le Bonlieu in Paris, but he just used to read to to his kids and read mm. read classics. He just started yeah. off and he went all the way to, you know like through with them, and one of the things he's got these rules for reading, like it's okay to skip. It's okay to abandon. <laughs> oh, thank know, God like someone that. said so, that out loud. So, That's so you're okay. So this is just one of the short sections. You've got to read. But from which part of my schedule should I take this daily hour of reading? From time spent with friends or watching TV or traveling or evenings with the family or my duties? Where does one find the time to read? It can seem like a serious problem, yet it's no problem at all. Whenever there's a question of whether there's time to read, it means the heart isn't in it. For if you look at it closely, no one ever has the time to read, neither children, nor teenagers, nor grown-ups. Life is a perpetual impediment to reading. Reading, sure, I'd like to, but there's the job, the children, the house. I've no time anymore. How I envy you're having time to read. And why is it that this woman who works shops, raises children, drives her car, loves three men, goes regularly to the dentist, is about to move house next week, why is it that she finds the time to read, whereas this man, a chaste bachelor of independent means, does not? The time to read 
is always stolen time, just like the time to write, moreover, or the time to love. A lot of the book is about teaching, and one of the things he says, uh, for example, is he says, you know, what great teachers we were when we didn't bother about teaching methods. And when I read the whole book, it dawned on me that what I was doing and what I had been doing all these years as a teacher was making meaning. Mm. Because it's, and each time, you know, I did, you know, I read Hamlet with them or, or Romeo and Juliet or, or a novel, whatever, we were making meaning together, which sounds like what you've been talking about in, in your groups and that, uh, these, these group conversations that you have. And I, it took me a while. I mean, I was, you know, I was close to the end of my career when I realized that that is what I was doing. I was making meaning and that teaching is conversation. And uh, it seems to kind of change the accent of it if you think about it like that. You're having conversations to make meaning. And, you know, the teacher may know some things that the pupils don't and may point out you can't say that there. Just, you know, the text doesn't allow you to say that. But you are making meaning together. And each time I read these texts with the pupils, they were different. Because the, the kids in the room are different. Because the kids are, the kids are different. different. Yeah, and uh, because, and because their interests, you're, you've got different groups of kids bringing different interests. And then when you think about it, of course it's like that because every production of Hamlet you see is different yeah, because a director and the actors, they're bringing different ac accents and interests to it. It's, but, and even you're the, you're a different teacher than you were the year of before because someone might have passed away in that year or or it not, it maybe not something not even as significant as that. You're just a different person in the same way that texts are different when we go back to them year on year. You're a different person, but then the people in the room are different as well. So it, you're right. This idea of, of making meaning together as a collective experience is a really interesting way of putting it. I just want to interrupt myself for a minute to remind you that Scottish Book Trust believes books, reading and writing have the power to change lives. A love of reading inspires creativity, improves employment opportunities, mental health and well-being, and is one of the most effective ways to help break the poverty cycle. If you believe books have the power to change lives, why not become a regular giver to Scottish Book Trust at scottishbooktrust.com slash donate. Now, back to the Book Week Scotland conversation featuring Marjorie Gill and myself, Tom Powell, on the theme of conversation and reading. When I was teaching, you know, I hated worksheets. <sighs> You know, because I hated that idea of, you know, like, here it is, this is, you know, like, people have, they've got it down. You know, like, this is, this is the view, this is what we want out of you. Because I think you should keep nimble in your feet when you're having a conversation. But do you think, this is the reason I love poetry, I think, most. is because there's so many, there's no worksheet to fill in for a poem because there is no right answer. That's why we love them in our groups because 
you get to decide. I mean, it's true for fiction too, but less so because the, the writer is telling you what's happening in the story. In a poem, there's so many holes. There are good poems. There are lots and lots of holes that your readers get to engage. You know, it becomes about making meaning with your reader in a way that might not be true in a storyline, in a narrative storyline, I think. But I don't know if you, you're making a yes, point. So maybe yes, I mean, there is, like I say, I mean, one of the things that's interesting, I think, is to say is that that point of but the text says this yeah you know so i understand why you're saying that but the text doesn't the text doesn't support that but there's still that space for 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 meaning and like you say nobody can tell you what a poem means to you no and in fact it's best if you read them without the poet in the room <laughs> because then you get to i mean this morning with a group of 20 s5 kids in glasgow we decided that the poet for one poem was a liar, which is great. You know, we, that the whole poem was a poem of untruths. Who knows whether that's the case or not, but it's, I love that freedom to be able to have the conversation, as you say, decide in that room at that moment that that group of students think the poem's a lie, which which is a really strange thing to say about a poem, but it's great. You well, know. that was always Nora McCaig's case for poetry, that, that you could write something down and the poem was there and you could interrogate it. Yeah. You could write a love poem and then it would be there and you could ask, do I believe this? Is this love poem true? That's interesting. You know, are these, fe are these feelings true? So it was an education in the feelings and the, the poem could catch you out. And I think that's true. I think Ooh. everybody who writes, you know, like a love letter or something must, must at the end say, do I, do I mean this? Or if you go back to it a few years later, you think I might be meant it then, but do I still mean it or was it true? You know, yeah. with, a, with a kind of hindsight. So this might be a good point to do my little reading. I think so. Um, which, isn't, which is a poem about conversation, but not about reading. Um, it's a poem about Edward Thomas on his last night with his wife, Helen. It's, and I wrote it when I read an interview about what their last night together was like of her. So the conversation in this poem ends, which is why I thought it'd be interesting to read. Edward Thomas on his last night with Helen. Every minute is stretched by speech or touch, the sheer act of listening to snowfall. He says, I would like to know how I failed you. She denies him, asks his hope for the children, and put on the spot he can think of nothing but happiness, does not mind its form. Finally, he's at a loss for words. When light arrives, the children dress and go out into the white, dancing the ritual of snow, laughing against the wind. He watches them holding her hand before carrying his bag up the hill. At the summit, as usual, he calls a last cooey, listens for her echo. Uh, lovely, lovely. Sort of moving end to what, what was a difficult marriage and in lots in lots of ways and and the, it's lovely to have an edward thomas influenced poem because uh, i mean he wrote most of his poems in two years didn't yeah he? yeah and just and that idea that the last the interview from my recollection was about that last night that they spent together and the snowstorm and his last call from the hill as he always did as a kind of conversation that just carried on because that was it that yeah. was the end for them which of course i mean people who emigrated 
Yeah. There was frequently a hill and there was frequently a call. You know, people walked yeah. over the hill. They, walk, they walked out of view as Edward Thomas. It's funny, I read it to did. a friend this morning who said exactly that. That reminds, she reminded her of a poem I have about my father leaving his mother in Tabriz in the late 50s. And she was never sure if she'd see him again. You know, it took months and months for letters to arrive. They were expensive. She never knew whether, you know, she did know because she eventually heard back. But it probably took six months for her to hear from him. Mm. I mean, it's in inconceivable now to think yeah. that you wouldn't hear from someone on the other side of the hill yeah. as they got on the bus or whatever it was. But yeah, it, back in the day, you know, that was it. You, you just hope that they got there alive and that all Absolutely. was well. So one of the books that I've looked at recently and absolutely loved is Roseanne Watt's new collection, her first collection, Motor Die, which is a real love letter to her homeland in Shetland. And it feels like that kind of looking back over the hill at the place that you come from and having a conversation with the land and the language and the people from afar in some ways. I'm not sure how from afar she is, but kind of being able to look back and have a conversation and include other people in those conversations of the, your origins and the places that you come from. And uh, we read it in a book group recently, had an entire conversation over an evening about this one book, and all 12 of us, never happened before, absolutely universally loved the book. So it is that thing of co conversing with the places that you're from and having lots of other people join in that conversation. It's a, it's a super book, and and the the language in it uh, is particularly rich, uh, isn't it? And I I love the um, the fact that you can you can hold it in your mouth, you can kind of roll it in in your mouth. It's it's like language as a, as a physical thing. Uh, and she, in fact, she has a poem about that, doesn't she? In the book about how speaking in the Shetland dialect, it's like holding stones in your mouth and dropping them out one by one. It's a beautiful visualization for those of us who are trying to read some of the dialect of what it feels like to try and say words that aren't ours. It's beautiful, you're right. I want to ask you how you came up with this idea of conversation in the first place. The uh, year of conversation began with a, a book launch of a collection, an anthology of Latin American poetry translated by a friend of mine, Richard Gwynn, and uh, it was launched in Blackwells. And there were a number of, of Latin American writers there, one of whom was uh, the Argentinian poet Jorge Fondebreider. And he had a conversation with Richard and uh, he said, it's very difficult to have a conversation with you he indicated the Blackwell's audience because, he went on, because you're so ignorant. And Blackwell's audiences <laughs> aren't used to that. So he, he said, he said, I go into a bookshop in Buenos Aires and it's full of books translated from English into Spanish. Mm. I go into a bookshop here and there's nothing. He said, you are missing half the conversation. And I began to think translation as conversation is a very interesting idea. And then I began to think, well, actually, there's lots of, of, of small enterprises in Scotland where people do translate and people do meet writers and, and move between languages. So I played around with that. And then I, I met a friend, Faith Little, on, on the, the number 22 bus, and we were talking about Brexit, and she said it's just really important to keep conversations going. Mm -hmm. And 
I had to get off the bus, but I thought, what conversations with whom? What kind of conversations? What should we be talking about? So, uh, so I began conversations with uh, lots of people involved in the arts and and other organisations, and um, I sort of whittled it down to the three aims. Uh, the aim was to celebrate conversations that were going on because there are a lot of these things and, and we should celebrate these uh, to initiate conversation, to start new conversations, um, things that perhaps weren't being talked about as they should be. And uh, the third thing is to explore conversation, to find different ways of of having conversations with people. Uh, so these were the three things, and then it narrowed down to, to, to a number of themes, conversation and childhood, conversation as event, like book festivals and mm. things, conversation within and across boundaries, conversation as a social good. Interestingly enough, the, I mean, we've had a number of, of quite uh, large-scale events, but I'm quite interested in, in the intimate connection of conversation and the fact that we all have this ability. I think a conversation about reading and the value of reading is has been very valuable and there will be other conversations that will be having, that, that will be held, other podcasts that uh, people can listen to during book week. Is the hope with, the, with tapping into the smaller conversations that they will kind of steamroll into just that you'll create more of them, that they'll kind of feed into more of them? Or is the idea just to reveal them so that we all acknowledge and value the kind of one-to-one, especially in an age where we're all looking at our phones, right? Well, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think for, um, for we had a day of conversation, which we, um, in which our partners were Voluntary Arts Scotland and Scottish uh, mental health arts festival mm. and I produced a, a kind of toolbox and some of the toolbox things were were, were difficult to do it was like organise things with other people mm. um, but some of the others were just like talk to people upstairs in a bus um, just just making sure that, that you, you like in a self-conscious way saying I'm going to make today my day of conversation I'm going to speak to somebody and it's that um, it's that intimacy it's that feeling that you have the you have the will you know you have the power to make contact with people yeah that's that's very enriching and and this is something I've felt I've felt personally um, and do you think that differs culturally? Do you think in other cultures? So I'm always surprised for, by Americans, for example, how talkative they are. Because I've been away from America for so long. When I go back, random people in stores will ask you how you're doing and how's your day. And, and I, you know, as as an almost British person now, I kind of sometimes think, just leave me to do my shopping, which is funny as a response, you know. Um, but I wonder culturally whether some people are more inclined to conversation but is, is, is that is that an interested question or is it is it just a cultural kind of throw it throwing it out you know is, is it like a have a nice day yeah maybe or i think i i increasingly think there are just people who are interested in the 
people around them, looking for the stories, right? As writers, you're looking for a story or you're in, just interested in this backstory of someone who's might be serving you their coffee or checking you out at the supermarket. So I, I wonder whether that's a personality type or a cultural thing or whether we can change it. But in a, particularly in the context where loneliness is such a big thing, Open Book finds that a lot of people who come to our public groups, which we did not set out to have, but we, we do have now, are people who don't speak to anyone else during the week. We'll get comments like, that's the first time I've heard my voice in a week, my own voice in a week, um, which is heartbreaking, but also we're grateful you know, that they come along and read aloud and take part. So I think increasingly we're finding that there are people who, I don't know whether it's that it's the digital age or what, people just don't engage with, you don't have to engage, you can get your shopping delivered, you don't have to go out, you don't have to speak to people if you don't want to. Well, I yeah, I mean, I think I think I think that's true. There's a terrific book, um, "Reclaiming Conversation" by Shelley Turkle, and she talks about the, you know like the effect of all this digital yeah. uh, world and people being lost in their phones and people uh, not addressing uh, other people. Although one mustn't rush to judgment. Think about Alistair Reed's poem about "Write Me a Letter." That isn't even a letter that's being written it's the wish to write a letter the wish to receive a letter the wish for conversation and I think I wonder if a digital conversation or a kind of messenger message or a whatsapp message is that same idea of wishing for a conversation wishing to have someone write to you yes because I know the intimacy that uh, you can have online you know I taught an online creative writing master and it was surprised surprised at the intimate communication uh, that it gave rise to. And uh, part of this project, I said, is to, ex to explore conversation. Although some people say about digital conversations that they are different because you don't think before you write in a way that you would say something to someone digitally, that, especially the generation behind me, that they would never say in person. So that it has this kind of scary lack of a barrier, that people's barriers drop online. That might not be true for someone my age, but it certainly is true for my and, teenagers. And, uh, you know, yeah. so there and is which that was, kind of which in, in this uh, Shelley Turkle, this was one of the reasons she, she, she began the book because the uh, high school teacher friends that she had in America, she's just, a psychologist, uh, noticed a dramatic fall in empathy among mm. students. And she said part of that was because they were able to say these things. Yeah. Unlikely, she said, whereas if they were confronted by the person, and, you know, some teachers said, this is the person you said this to, yeah. they, they, they were horrified. So there's, there's, a, there's a gap, isn't there, maybe in understanding uh, how words, no matter how they come to you, uh, can hurt and actually this is a, a digital conversation we're having it's being recorded digitally and we hope it's a conversation that uh, other people will who are listening uh, we hope it's a conversation with them and that they will extend the conversation After my conversation with Marjorie, it strikes me that, just as Edwin Morgan wrote that there is a poetry before poetry, so there is a reading before we become readers. We can chart that time more easily, if memory allows us, because far fewer books are involved. It's like a small stream 
that leads us to the sea. But reading is a language, and like any language, it benefits from being shared. As Kate Briggs has written, reading the same books as someone else is a way of being together. That's true, even if you have little else in common. Marjorie's work with Open Book is built on that belief, as of course are book groups up and down the land. I hope that our conversation about reading has convinced you, if you needed any convincing, that the conversations that arise from reading are an engaging way of being together. You've been listening to A Conversation About Reading, part of A Year of Conversation, featuring Marjorie Gill and Tom Pow. The show was directed by Tom Pow and produced by Ewan Spence. A Conversation About Reading is a Spence Media production, commissioned for Book Week Scotland by Scottish Book Trust. <laughs>